Hi there, and welcome to a Trauma Care Conference podcast from Telford. I'm Simon Lang. I'm an emergency medicine consultant based in the Heart of England Foundation Trust in Birmingham. And today I'm joined by... Simon Carley. I'm from the St. Emlyn's podcast and blog, and I'm an emergency physician up in Manchester. And this is the first of what we hope are many joint podcasts from the Arkham FOMED network and the St. Emlyn's podcast. Now, Simon, you've just given a great talk on the top 10 papers in trauma over the last 12 months. So do you want to kick us off with one of your favourite papers? Yeah, sure. It's been quite an interesting year for trauma. There's been some really good quality papers out there, and there's been some other stuff which is not necessarily fantastic quality, but really interesting and stuff which has made us stop and think. But if I wanted to pick one to kick off with, um, I would pick the trial from the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year from David Wright and colleagues, where they looked at the very early administration of progesterone for acute traumatic brain injury, a good RCT published in a high-impact journal. Quite an interesting study. What were the major findings from that study? Well... This has been something that's been knocking around for quite a long period of time. People have been talking around using sex hormones in the treatment of acute traumatic brain injury for ages. And there's no doubt that if you are a rat in a laboratory, getting a bit of progesterone on board is really good if you're going to have a brain injury. And there's some small data in human trials, a couple of trials, where it's been good. But this is a big study. They tried to get 1,140 patients into a randomised control trial Patients with significant injury, GCS of 4 to 12, who were getting an RCT approach of progesterone infusions for brain injury. And they followed this group of patients up to see what happened to them at six months' time, using Glasgow Outcome Score as the final measure. So what were those major findings? Well, it was interesting, actually, because it was not what they expected. The trial stopped early. And the trial stopped early because they found no effect when they did an interim analysis. And so they looked at the patients with moderate injury and they found that the proportion of patients with really good outcomes, so a Glasgow outcome score of 8 or 7, was less in the progesterone group as in the placebo group. Overall, if you took all the patients together, it didn't seem to make any difference. And in those patients who had the most severe injury with a very low GCSs, more of them died on the progesterone group than in the placebo group. So really quite an unexpected result. And a bit of a shame, really, because we had high hopes for this therapy. But it does tell us that you cannot transfer data from lab studies directly into humans. These sort of studies are really important and really exciting to read, even though sadly on this occasion it was negative. So the second of the papers that we're going to talk through in a tiny bit of depth um, is one that quite a few listeners may already have come across, and that's the proper trial. Do you want to run us through sort of the main findings from that study? Yeah, sure. So again, this is um, a good quality study. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association earlier this year, and it's looking at severely injured trauma patients comparing different ratios of resuscitation fluids. So either giving them one-to-one-to-one, the platelets, FFP, blood, or one-to-one-to-two, platelets, FFP, and blood. So two units of blood for the, for the FFP and the platelets. And essentially, it is a randomised control trial. It's a good design done in the US in, in a good system, a good trauma system, 12 level one trauma centres over there. And they followed these patients through to see what their outcome was at 24 hours and also at 30 days. It's an interesting study. They, if you read the headline figures for this, they will tell you that there's no difference between the two groups. And certainly statistically, that's the case. But if, you're, if you have time to go and have a look at the graphs from this study and look at the mortality ratios over time, you'll see that it does look as if the study's probably underpowered, that there may well be a difference between these two groups, but there's just insufficient numbers of patients in the trial to demonstrate it. One-to-one-to-one looks better than one-to-one-to-two, both at 24 hours and at 30 days. 
And the difference is, is clinically significant. So at 24-hour mortality, in the one-to-one to two group, 17% died. In the one-to-one to one, 12.7% died. Now, not statistically significant, but if, that, if that's true, that's clinically important. Now, what they also did is they did a post hoc analysis. Now, we're going to be always be a bit careful about that. You can always find things in a post hoc analysis which may not be true. But there's some rationale for this. They looked at those patients who died from exsanguination. So the bleeding patients. These are ones who might benefit the most from aggressive management of their coagulopathy. And in that group, there was a statistically significant difference. Intervention groups are the one-to-one-to-one group, 9.2% died, whereas 14.6% in the one-to-one-to-two group died. Now, to me, we can have two conclusions from this. One is, there's no difference, let's go one-to-one-to-one, because those are easy numbers to remember. Or two, there may well be difference in this trial is underpowered, but still go for one-to-one-to-one. So, however you look at it, let's go platelets, FFP, blood cells, one-to-one-to-one resuscitation. That's what we should be doing. It's been quite interesting, actually, talking to quite a few people at the conference about what they're doing with their major hemorrhage protocols now. And it would seem that this trial's already had quite an effect and some people have already swapped over to one-to-one-to-one. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, back in Verchester, our virtual hospital. Um, yes, absolutely. We're on our one-to-one-to-one um, protocol with, of course, a bit of tranexamic acid on board as well. And the third paper that we're going to cover in a bit of depth is one which will probably make a big difference to the way that we see brain injury patients uh, presenting in RED. Do you want to run through that for us? Yeah, well, it's a question to you, really. I suppose in your department or in patients you've seen, would you recognise something like this? So you have a patient who comes in with a significant head injury and as part of your assessment, you look at the pupils. We're all taught to do this and you see bilaterally dilated pupils. How does that make you and your team feel? What have we been taught in the past about this group? Well, I think it's fair to say that there will be a sudden deflation about the uh, chance that that patient's got of a good neurological outcome. And you can almost feel the weight of the room sink um, and people suddenly seem to consider that this is going to be a futile case. Now, there have been quite a few papers over the last few years that have looked at this and they've looked at it in a setting of patients who've got a ROSC after a, after a cardiac arrest. And there's been quite a lot of evidence towards it being not quite so futile. Whether or not that's filtered through to people's understanding and their practice is a bit debatable. But I think it's fair to say that in general, at an MTC, or at a trauma unit, if you get someone with fixed dilated pupils, the enthusiasm to aggressively um, resuscitate and treat these patients is a bit diminished. Are you going to tell me something else? Well, I hope so, yeah, because Mark Wilson, John Scotter, Susan Hendrickson, Hanny Marcus have looked at what the evidence actually says for this group of patients. So in patients with head injury, what is the effect of this bilateral fixed dilated pupils, which does create this nihilistic attitude? And... There's not a great deal of data out there, but it's the best data we've got available at the moment. And they've drawn some interesting conclusions, interesting findings, differentiating between the subdurals and the extradurals. Now, subdurals are a brain injury. We know that they have a worse prognosis. So in that group with subdurals, the mortality is pretty high. So 66.6%. And only 6.6% of those patients, that's still more than one in 20, let's face it, have a good neurological outcome. So it's not completely useless, even in the subdural patients. But to me, and the really important thing to me, is this group of extradural hematomas. So the extradural hematomas, I've said this to many people, when I read the study it was the same, it's a surprise. The mortality, fixed eye to pupils, 30%. 
So over two thirds of these patients survive. And in good neurological outcome, over half, 54.3% in this study, have a good neurological outcome. This is a group of patients who we should be totally actively managing. We should be rushing these people to neurosurgery. This is a tension hemothorax of the head. As Mark Wilson would say, let's get these patients actively managed. The prognosis can be excellent. Well, I think armed with those figures and in the resuscitation room, that is going to make a fantastic difference um, to people's expectations of patient outcomes and hopefully drive um, some more aggressive and appropriate resuscitation and neurosurgical intervention promptly. Now, there are a few other papers that you covered in your talk. Should we just run through very, very briefly the take-home messages from those? Yeah, sure. There was a couple of airway papers. So we looked at a paper from KSS, um, Kent and Surrey and Sussex Air Ambulance, uh, just looking at their change in protocol for their drugs in RSI. They moved from Atomidate Sucks to Fentanyl, Ketamine and Rocuronium. And in that study, it's an observational study, it's not fantastic science, but it seems to show you get better cardiac stability and better views at laryngoscopy if you use Fentanyl, Ketamine and Rocuronium. I think that's great. It's something that we should be taking on board, and I think it's something we'll be using back in Virchester. Similarly, in those combative patients, the hypoxic, difficult-to-manage patients, we've seen that paper from, which I know will be familiar to many people in the foam world, on DSI. Now, Scott and colleagues have published the, the DSI paper in Alts of Emergency Medicine. It's an observational study of 62 patients. Now, it's a bit cheeky having it here because there were only two trauma patients in that study. But I think we're building an evidence base for a group of difficult to manage patients, difficult to prepare for RSI. DSI seems to be a way. So I think that's worthy of mention, even in a trauma talk like this. Can we just run through the concept of DSI, just those that aren't familiar with it? Yeah, sure. I think the easiest way to explain it, it's... um, a way of providing procedural sedation for pre-oxygenation and preparation for RSI. So you give somebody a dose of ketamine who's combative and difficult to manage, it calms them down, it allows you to pre-oxygenate them and prepare them. Now, in the, the study, they talk about using one to two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine IV. I think that's quite a large dose, and in my personal practice, I've not found that level required. Usually, half a milligram per kilogram is enough to calm people down enough to prepare them properly for the RSI and then give them some more uh, medication later. Don't use it in every patient, but it is out there in your toolbox for managing the airway in trauma patients. Okay, fantastic. The next one? Um, A couple of procedural ones. So there's an interesting paper from Japan looking at Reboa, because Reboa has been talked about a lot at this conference. Everybody's really excited about Reboa. And, you know, we're we're, pre-hospital guys, emergency medicine guys and ladies. Um, We do like new kit. Reboa is relatively new to the UK, but the Japan group have been doing this for some time, and they've got a large database of 45,000 patients within which they've had 452 Reboas. Now, they've done an interesting design, it's a case control design, where they've matched the Reboa patients to um, four patients with similar levels of injury. What they've found is, and I guess it's a little bit unsurprising, that if you have Reboa, you're more likely to die. And my concern is that this will be telling people not to do Reboa. I don't think it tells you that. I think what it tells you is that this is probably used as a last resort in many places. But if we are going to start doing this in the UK, and we are going to put this into our protocols, we need to do this very carefully. We need to record the data. We need to share the data. And we need to get a better picture about which patients it's being applied to and whether or not it's actually making a difference. So this is a bit disappointing, but perhaps not surprising. You did mention, Simon, um, something about the figures of the patients that were undergoing Reboa, though, in these studies, and the mortality rate, or 
looking at it conversely, the survival rate for those patients. Now, in my mind, when I think about a patient that's undergoing Reboa, I'm really thinking about a patient who's almost certainly going to die. It's a last-ditch attempt, um, and it's a patient that I really wouldn't expect to be leaving that hospital after that admission. What were the numbers that they talked about in that study? I think that's a really interesting point. The, the, they were very severely injured, unsurprisingly, so high ISS, about 35 on average. The overall mortality was 75%. Now, if they're applying it to that group which you're talking about, a mortality of 75%, which is better than the 99% that you were predicting, yeah. could be a positive outcome. And that's why I think this is really interesting. It's the biggest data series I've seen around Reboa. But I don't think this should put us off. I think it's a call for us to collaborate and share information as we institute these therapies into the UK. And I know services like uh, London HEMS are doing that in a very controlled way with very, very good audit loops. And I think that's what we should be doing here. We shouldn't abandon it, but we should be very careful about how we implement it. Okay, so still an exciting area of emergency medicine and watch this space. Absolutely. Okay, so other things that we talked about, we talked about the HERT trial, which is an RCT of physician in a helicopter versus ground transport for head injured patients in Sydney. Quite a controversial one, that one, a difficult study to do, very expensive, lots and lots of controversy. They changed their inclusion criteria. Um, as a study progressed, it's worth a read and it's worth having a look at some of the other blogs out there, such as uh, Min Lekong's uh, blog at the farm, P-H-A-R-M, um, to look at the controversies around that study. But they did seem to find that there was benefit to a physician on a helicopter responding to patients with a low GCS, GCS less than nine. Whether or not we can bear that out and whether or not we can transfer the data to other trauma systems, it's debatable really. But it is worth a read of that paper just because it is a large RCT of helicopter versus ground transport, the sort of study which we say is too difficult to do. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, we've also looked at tranexamic acid again. Really? Are we still looking at tranexamic acid? Crash 2 is, gosh, ages ago. But there are still people around the world who don't believe it. And one of their arguments has been that when CRASH-2 was done, the groups of hospitals that were used in that study, not all of them had mature trauma systems. And they've argued that, well, if you had it in a really good trauma system, you wouldn't need TXA or maybe we'd harm patients. And it's been a difficult one to, to, to get away from. So Karen Brohe and colleagues um, the Royal London looked back at the data when they started using TXA on patients admitted to ICU. So some patients got TXA, some people didn't. And in that study, this is a mature trauma system, the Royal London is a good place, they have again shown that tranexamic acid improves mortality in severely injured, shocked patients. And, you know, I don't know how much more data we need to put out there for this. Um, I know this study is going to come out of um, uh, the US and also from Australia soon. I'm going to put my neck out and say I'm predicting that they're going to show a benefit to TXA in severely injured patients. Again, which will back up CRASH-2. Um, in the UK, give the TXA, come on, it's got to be done. Okay, and is that a voice that you've heard, sort of this um, reluctance to accept TXA in this country? No, it's mostly abroad, and, and certainly in America, I was recently in America, and um, uh, there was a lot of opposition to the use of TXA from some centres, and it was the argument that CRASH-2 did not include hospitals like they have in America, because they, they weren't involved in CRASH-2. Um, I'm not sure why that is... And I don't necessarily believe that they should be so resistant to transamic. So I think the data, as it currently stands, is give it. Until we hear better, until we hear anything different, the evidence overwhelmingly is in favour of the use of transamic acid in patients who are at risk of bleeding. Great. OK, we'll obviously carry on giving it in the UK, as hopefully we all are at the moment. Indeed. The next paper that you've come across? 
There is one more paper, and it's uh, just a short one, really. And that was looking at the outcome from blunt thoracotomy. And this is a paper from two UK emergency physicians, uh, David Slesser and Simon Hunter. And they looked at the evidence for survival, um, good survival, neurologically positive survival, in thoracotomy for blunt trauma. Now, with the recent MTCs being put into the UK, I've spoken to a number of people across the country, here in the Midlands, also in the Northeast, about some really dramatic survival from patients who've had blunt trauma, who've then had a thoracotomy to assist their resuscitation, usually in traumatic cardiac arrest, and have survived. And this kind of made me stop and think, because the traditional teaching was that there is no indication to do a thoracotomy in blunt trauma. And David and Simon, they've gone back, had a look at the evidence, and it's an interesting one. They found a number of studies, mostly case series, of just under 1,400 patients. Now, amongst that 1,400 patients, a very small number of them had a positive outcome, just 21, 1.5%. That's, it's not zero. That's really important. And they've gone further into that data and said, well, actually, the ones who did survive were the ones who had short periods or no CPR, and they had vital signs in the ED or just before arriving in the ED. And so they've come out with a nice little algorithm that basically says the patient's got to be um, in cardiac arrest or nearly in cardiac arrest. They've got to have had recent vital signs, no CPR, no obvious reason why they're going to die anyway, like a massive head injury. Got to be able to do it. If those circumstances are met, then consider it. So it's not a no And I think that's really important here, that it's no longer a don't do blunt thoracotomy. It's just be quite selective about those patients that you do. So if you do follow the algorithm that they suggest in the paper, what's the survival rate for that cohort? You can't tell that from the study because you'd have to know the details of the individual patients. But in those studies where they looked at patients who had had vital signs in the ED or just before the probability of a poor outcome, it was about 99%, to be honest. So that's still only 1 in 100 getting a positive outcome. But the numbers are relatively small. So the confidence intervals there range from uh, 96.4 up to 99.7. So you're really talking about an intervention with a 1% positive outcome. And that that's an interesting question then, isn't it? I mean, how far do you want to go? Yeah, so it's... um. It's a procedure that's high stress, does carry a lot of complications with it, not necessarily to the patient, but to the clinician performing the procedure. Um, The resource allocation and the subsequent care that those patients need is massive. So it's not necessarily a procedure that we're going to be wading into without any concerns. But one in 100 ending up with a good neurological outcome. If it was me as the patient... I don't know whether or not I could say that I'd want you to have a go. My leanings would probably be towards, yes, please, yourself. I hope to never be in that position um, and therefore making the decision. I think there's going to be some significantly difficult decision-making on the part of the trauma team leader around that. Does this person have a survivable injury? And I think if I see somebody who's got no evidence of neurotrauma and it is due to lower body, lower extremity, exsanguination, then I'd be inclined to go for yes. But I think if they've got multi-system disease, and particularly if they've got an associated head injury, I would be thinking that this is leaning towards futility. Okay, and, and that is exactly what their flowchart of decision-making included, wasn't it? So if there was a significant head injury that was going to almost certainly end up in a futile outcome, 
then you would stop at that point and you wouldn't consider a thoracotomy. Yeah, they put it as an obvious head injury that is incompatible with a good outcome. Now, the problem is that you may see somebody who's got a head injury, but if they're in cardiac arrest, they're GCS3. So I'm going to find it quite difficult to judge that one because the signs that I'm looking to judge the severity of their head injury are also features of their cardiac arrest or near cardiac arrest. So I still think there's going to be a little bit of judgment involved there. I think it's going to be a difficult decision for trauma team leaders. Okay, so no binary decision at the end of that? Sadly, no. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time, Simon. We'll put some um, links to the references at the bottom of the show notes. And we look forward to bringing you another podcast together soon from Archem Fomed and St. Emlyn's. Have fun, folks. Enjoy your emergency medicine.